1962, American novelist and Nobel Prize winner John Steinbeck wrote a letter to his friend revealing his six best strategies for productivity, beating procrastination, and to quote, keep from going nuts. He wrote, abandon the idea that you are ever going to finish. Lose track of the 400 pages and write just one page for each day. It helps. Then when it gets finished, you are always surprised. Two, write freely and as rapidly as possible and throw the whole thing on paper. Never correct or rewrite until the whole thing is down. Rewrite and process is usually found to be an excuse for not going on. It also interferes with flow and rhythm, which can only come from a kind of unconscious association with the material. Three, forget your generalized audience. In the first place, the nameless, faceless audience will scare you to death, and in the second place, unlike the theater, it doesn't exist. In writing, your audience is one single reader. I have found that sometimes it helps to pick out one person, a real person you know or an imagined person, and write to that one. 4. If a scene or a section gets the better of you and you still think you want it, bypass it and go on. When you have finished the whole, you can come back to it and then you may find that the reason it gave trouble is because it didn't belong there. 5. Beware of a scene that becomes too dear to you, dearer than the rest. It will usually be found that it is out of drawing. And finally, point six. If you are using dialogue, say it aloud as you write it. Only then will it have the sound of speech. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, workers, and being poor. I'm your host, Jason Nemoa Hardin. Join me as we explore the life of John Steinbeck and his world-famous novelette of Mice and Men. journey is a person in itself. No two are alike, and all plans, safeguards, policing, and coercion are fruitless. We find that after years of struggle that we do not take a trip. A trip takes us." End quote. John Ernst Steinbeck was born on February 27, 1902 in Salinas, California. His father was manager of a flour mill and treasurer of Monterey County, while his mother was a schoolteacher. After intermittently attending Stanford University from 1919 to 1925, where he managed to get two stories published in the Stanford Spectator, he left for New York in hopes of finding success. He continued to write short stories, but had trouble finding a publisher. A year later, he was back in California, supporting himself through a variety of jobs. And by the mid-1930s, the traditional literary fiction in America had shifted and given way to more politically inclined tales. I am accepted by working people everywhere as one of themselves, and I am proud of that fact, Sherwood Anderson had famously, if somewhat fantastically, said at the time. Due to the fact that the subject of politics had been pushed to the front by the sharp economic and social inequities of American life, many younger writers began to think of themselves as activists. 
Now, the Depression of 1929 played a large role in Steinbeck's life, as well as his writing. Magazines like The New Masses and The New Republic called for author fighters and worker correspondents to join the cause, which was conceived in rather conventional Marxist terms as owners of the production versus the term workers. Now, according to his sister, John was driven mad by injustice. Even as a child, he sided with the underdog. In January 1936, John Steinbeck and his wife Carol settled into their house on 11th Street in Pacific Grove, California, which was the summer cottage built by John's father in 1903. They had returned from a trip to Mexico and the weather back in California was drizzly and cold. For a while, Carol had been eager to leave Pacific Grove and move to somewhere consistently hot and dry, and the fact that her sinuses began to act up instantly upon returning didn't make it any easier for John to argue against the move. In addition to the old cottage being too small, she argued that now that they had some money on account of John's published books, quite a lot of money by their standards, they should find a new and bigger house. Should they not buy something of their own, something that wasn't handed down from the Steinbeck family, instead something they could call their own? Well, John was conflicted concerning his new financial situation. His memory of what it was like to live close to the poverty line was still fresh enough in his memory to make him think twice about spending large amounts of money. After all, it was only a few months prior when he wondered whether he would make it a year without taking on a job that paid a salary. Another thing that worried him was the fear that if the money continued to roll in, as it fortunately for him would, he would lose something of himself and that this would affect his writing. A friend of Steinbeck would later say, the subject of money drove him kind of crazy, and this was true even after money was no longer an issue, when he was in reality a wealthy man. Steinbeck, in essence, needed to think he was poor to continue pulling water from the same well he had with his prior successes. While his wife looked for a new house, he continued to work on a story originally intended for children, the novel that would soon turn into Of Mice and Men. At the time, ideas about writing plays or screenplays had been floating in his mind. To one friend, he said, Between us, I think the novel is painfully dead. I've never liked it. I'm going into training to write for the theater, which seems to be waking up. I have some ideas for a new dramatic form, which I'm experimenting with. It was April of 1936. Carol found a piece of land that ran along a gorgeous canyon in a thickly wooded area some 50 miles north of Monterey called Los Gatos. She then convinced John to buy the two-acre parcel and to let her build a house there, something that would genuinely be theirs and not a hand-me-down from the Steinbeck family. Due to its remoteness, the house in Los Gatos, known as the Biddle Place because of the land's previous owners, did not yet have access to electricity or telephone lines, which was an upside for John. Although he had not as of yet been bombarded for interviews, he had experienced enough of this pressure to convince him that sanity lay in avoiding the press. At least he could be certain in Los Gatos that the phone would not ring. After months of work on his new experimental project, in early May, his new puppy, 
a setter named Toby, apparently found the written pages as alluring as steak and made his master's book his lunch, effectively tearing it apart beyond repair. John's own description of the incident was, the dog ate my homework. <laughs> Just kidding. He actually remarked that the dog had made confetti of about half the book. This in turn left him with two months of work to do all over again. With considerable optimism, he estimated that by the beginning of the summer, his new little manuscript, which he called Something That Happened, would be ready for publication. Though not finished with the novel by early summer, as he estimated, the Steinbecks did manage to move their relatively few belongings to the new house in early July. Los Gatos suited them very well. Carol had shipped two trunks full of quaint art objects from Mexico City, which she filled the house with. Painted vases, little clay animals, pieces of colorful woven fabric, ceremonial masks used by the Indians. One night, during a full moon, John slipped out of bed and put on one of the masks and leaped about the house naked, frightening Carol and the dog. He felt extremely happy in his new study, waking up at dawn every morning to get some writing done. As he approached the end of most books, he would grow impatient and excited, pressing to the finish and sleeping in the same room as the manuscript. And without distractions, he worked dawn to dusk. It was, for the moment, all work and no play, as he told his agent. Now, in a letter that he kept that summer, he wrote, For the moment, the financial burdens have been removed. But it is not permanent. I was not made for success. And when it came to discussing his short novel, he was no more optimistic about its quality. It is an experiment, and I don't know how successful, he said. It is two-thirds done. There are problems in it difficult of resolution, but the biggest problem is a resolution of will. The rewards of work are so sickening to me that I do more with the greatest reluctance. The mind and will must concentrate again and to a purpose. When Steinbeck was younger, during summers and long dropout periods, he would work at his father's company, Spreckles, and other surrounding companies. Speckles had grown fairly large by 1920, and it owned or leased ranches all along the Salinas Valley from King City to Santa Clara. John worked in different capacities on several of them. While cultivating beet for the sugar plant in Salinas was their major function, the ranches also raised beef cattle and, to feed the livestock, produced hay and alfalfa. Each ranch had a permanent staff, but during certain times of the year, outside ranch hands were hired. These were the so-called bindlestiffs who eventually became the subject of mice and men, broken men who wandered the countryside looking for a bit of work on whatever farm they could find it. The specific incident that sparked of mice and men may have occurred during this time, as he later suggested to an interviewer, I was a bindlestiff for quite a spell. I worked in the same country that the story is laid in, and the characters are composites to a certain extent. Lenny was a real person. He's in an insane asylum in California right now. I worked alongside him for many weeks. He didn't kill a girl. He killed a ranch foreman. Got sore because the boss had fired his pal and stuck a pitchfork right through his stomach. I hate to tell you how many times I saw him do it. We couldn't stop him until it was too late. 
While he may have been indulging in a bit of role-playing for the interviewer here, the vividness of his fiction about people like George and Lenny may well be tied to his first-hand experience on these ranches. He certainly had enough daily contact with men like George and Lenny in his youth, and he therefore knew from experience how they thought, talked, and felt. He may have indeed heard reports of a case similar to that of Lenny's, or perhaps the least likely possibility, he may indeed have witnessed a hobo sticking a pitchfork through his foreman's stomach. I think John preferred those jobs to studying, his sister says. He always came home full of stories, and we would sit around the kitchen table and listen for hours. I didn't believe a lot of the stories, but didn't care. They were good stories, and they were meant to be taken as such. This story was something new for him, a simple human tale, very bold in outline. This tale of two lost souls, George and Lenny, was daringly simple. Too simple? He wondered. The idea of building too carefully for an event seems to me to be doing that old human trick of reducing everything to its simplest design. Now the designs of lives are not so simple. It was a long, slow summer in which the marriage seemed to be going quite well. John was utterly absorbed as he moved through various drafts of the novel, and Carol seemed content to write poems and garden and work on the new house, which still needed a lot of attention. His pleasure in the house is apparent in a letter to writer and friend George Albee. I have a little tiny room to work in, just big enough for a bed and a desk and a gun rack and a little bookcase. I like to sleep in the room I work in. Just at present, there is a hammering going on. We are building on a guest room. We had none and really need one. It will have big glass doors and screens so that it will really be an outside porch when we want to open the doors. And Dr. McDougall of Carnegie was up the other day and told us we have six varieties of oaks on the place besides Manzanata, Madrone, and Toyin. We're in a forest, you know. He was indeed happy, savoring the seclusion. Steinbeck was also a clever borrower of material from other writers. Some critics have called him a plagiarist, though it's common knowledge that writers often suffer, in Harold Bloom's famous phrase, the anxiety of influence. F. Scott Fitzgerald, no mere plagiarist himself, thought that Steinbeck had gone too far in Of Mice and Men. In McTeague by Frank Norris, there is a woman named Maria Macapo who has a relationship with a junk dealer named Zirkov. Maria dreams of escaping from the hideous poverty of her surroundings, much like Lenny. Also like Lenny, she is often encouraged to recite her dreams of the good life. In Maria's case, Zirkov torments her with this maneuver, whereas George has Lenny go through his litany of expectations just to make him feel better. Now, the rhythms of their dialogue are deeply reminiscent of those in Of Mice and Men, but the similarities stop there, so I leave it up to you to agree with Fitzgerald or not. John was done with the book by the second week in August, 1936. He then sent it off to the publisher. However, his usual pessimism was present as always. I guess we'll have to pull in our horns financially, he wrote to George Albee. 
I don't expect the little book of Mice and Men to make any money. The reaction at the publishing house was, as it usually was, mixed. Up to that point, he had never written a book that everybody thought was going to do well. Editor Pat Covici did claim to like it nonetheless and said he would bring it out early in the new year. He sensed no real enthusiasm from Covici, although he was grateful that his editor was willing to stand behind him. The publication of Mice and Men was scheduled for the winter of 1937 and, as scheduled, was published in early February. There were mixed reactions before publication, even outside the publishers. Hermann Schumlin, the producer who had optioned Steinbeck's prior novel, In Dubious Battle, disliked it and refused to consider a play adaptation. The public response, however, was quite the contrary, which took the publishers and the author himself by huge surprise. By the middle of February, the book had already sold 117,000 copies. That's a hell of a lot of books, Steinbeck wrote to Pat Covici on the 28th of February, rubbing it in a little bit. Now, he was justified in doing so, given that the book was flying out of the stores, with even the press beginning to swarm around Steinbeck. Then, in January of 1938, the Book of the Month Club had chosen Of Mice and Men as a main selection, thus guaranteeing a large audience and, of course, even more substantial sales. Of Mice and Men continued to climb the bestseller list, and letters to Steinbeck poured in from strangers and friends alike, as did requests for interviews, readings, public appearances, and autographs. Ironically, since he had initially loved the concept of not having a phone in his Los Gatos home, to his chagrin, Steinbeck was forced to travel several miles to the nearest telephone to respond to urgent requests of one kind or another, most of which proved mere annoyances. Once, a tourist turned up at his front gate with her little daughter in tow, and when she saw Steinbeck, she cried, Dance for the man, darling, dance! Though success came with some setbacks, the Steinbecks took advantage of their new financial ease, adding some good pieces of furniture to their home as well as a homemade gramophone. The fact that Of Mice and Men was conceived as a play in novella form made it easily convertible for the stage. Thus, it was not long before he was engaged by George S. Kaufman, the Broadway playwright and director, to produce a version for the Footlights. Sam H. Harris, who was much revered on Broadway, was enlisted as producer, thus ensuring a first-class production. A Kaufman wrote to encourage Steinbeck, telling him that his novel drops almost naturally into play form, and no one knows that better than you, adding... It is only the second act that seems to me to need fresh invention. You have the two natural scenes for it, Bunkhouse and the Negro's Room, but I think the girl should come into both these scenes, and that the fight between Lenny and Curly, which will climax act two, must be over the girl. I think the girl should have a scene with Lenny before the scene in which he kills her. The girl, I think, should be drawn more fully. She is the motivating force of the whole thing and should loom larger. And the fact that she was never even given a name shows that Steinbeck did not intend her to play a large part in the story. As Kaufman wished, though, her role was greatly expanded for the play and, later, for the film. 
Though heralded as one of the greatest pieces of writing in American fiction, the novella has also garnered controversy and has been banned from various U.S. public and school libraries for allegedly promoting euthanasia, condoning racial slurs, being anti-business, containing profanity, and generally containing vulgar offensive language, as well as containing racial stereotypes. Wow, that's a long list. Now, many of the bans and restrictions have been lifted, and it remains required reading in many other American, Australian, Irish, British, New Zealand, and Canadian high schools. Well, I can definitely vouch for the book in the U.S., at least in my youth, as I recall it being required reading during my elementary school years. In fact, it was the first book I ever read in full. Or was that the Bible? Ah, it gets a bit fuzzy as the years go by. I'm sure you understand. <laughs> anyway, as usual, let's end the episode with a quote from the poor California wanderer himself. It seems to me that if you or I must choose between two courses of thought or action, we should remember our dying and try so to live that our death brings no pleasure on the world. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemore Hardin. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords or paypal.me slash houseofwordspodcast. Alternatively, you can subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page, House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. Narrated and written by me, Jason Moore Harden, And music by Creature9 and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Crystal M. Sanchez and Jason Nemo Harden. <laughs> <laughs>